Bottle Episode is a spirited podcast about spiritous libations. Those under their country's legal drinking age should turn off this podcast and go do their homework. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Bottle Episode, the professional bartender's guide for the cocktail enthusiast. I'm Lan Tollison, your resident professional bartender. And I'm Elise, your resident cocktail enthusiast. We love to see it. Well, folks, uh, we've been hyping up one of our favorite bars in Nashville for several episodes now, and so it felt like high time to talk to someone who's currently working there, you know, boots on the ground, so to speak. Uh, She hails from Richmond, Virginia, where she worked at wonderful places like the Jefferson Hotel and Brenner Pass, and now she's the head bartender at the Fox in Nashville. Uh, We sing its praises all the time here. Best Daiquiri in Nashville. Yep. All the time. Uh, She's a powerhouse behind the bar. She's a delight in conversations. And her last name sounds a lot like a delicious Amaro. It's Laura Unterberg, Uh, (laughs) y'all. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh. Thank you guys. Boy, do I wish my last name was a little bit closer. I'd be raking in those bitter, bitter dollars right now. Such bitter dollars. <laughs> uh, well, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing really well. Uh, how are you guys? What's new? Oh, you know, just uh, we started a new podcast. So that's basically that's, been taking up all our yeah. time. Casual. Yeah, mm-hmm. super casual. Uh, yeah, so uh, we we met briefly you you ice uh you did like a a trail behind the bar at roosevelt room and like we we chatted really briefly and talked about like uh our mutual connections in nashville and and uh then i got to see you work behind the bar whenever we came to nashville back in uh july of last year yeah, uh, yeah. and it was such yeah. a delight it was so nice to to see you guys back in in Nashville, and for sure, um, the Roosevelt Room is such an exciting program. Um, and it was so cool. That was kind of my one brief, uh, my kind of last hurrah before taking on taking on the program at the Fox. And kind of, I was like, all right, I have like a week free before I have to start being beholden to do constant menu flips and ordering. Let's go go mm-hmm. have a little bit of fun, see how another bar does it. And it was really really cool to see you guys in your element. Yeah. I definitely get a little jealous sometimes about the constant menu flips because I I, I get antsy with sameness. Uh, and at the Roosevelt <laughs> Room, we like we don't change our menu that often, and we're we're working on like a big menu overhaul pretty soon. Uh, and we've got our seasonal menu that changes like basically bi seasonally. But other than that, the cocktails like stay the same for like years on end. Uh, and so it's like. I think it's definitely like a grass is greener situation where it's like, oh man, they're oh, always co- sure. they're always putting out cool new cocktails every month. Which are you guys still doing every month, or is it? Uh... Absolutely, um, <laughs> so we'll do we'll do menu flips that are you know three to five new cocktails every single month, um, and then we do like one day special menus at minimum. Two, two times a month. Um, but usually sometimes I think God, last month we did like five of them and wow. that has three to four cocktails on each one. It's wild. It's every once in a while I'll be looking back through my files and be like, I just, I don't even remember this drink. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's a fun, it's a f- fun adventure though. And definitely challenging. For sure. I mean, it's, it's so like, I, I mean, I imagine if you're putting out that many cocktails all the time, like just the, the, 
the work your brain has to go through to just like constantly keep up that creative drive mm -hmm. uh, because it is like it's tough to like always be on it with with your like creativity and and coming up with something like truly new do you do you ever have drinks that were meant for a day and then you're like shit that was really good it needs to go on the main one or are there ones you're sad that you could only please stop telling all my secrets okay that's exclusively <laughs> uh yeah that's honestly um oftentimes if i'm like if i like something but i'm not sure how it'll resonate with guests we'll do it for a mm. one day thing um or there are things that are like techniques that i'm not sure how it will execute in service so i'm like we'll do it for one day um and then it shows up uh later for the full month it's also i mean you guys see it is so difficult to source some products right now and oh, glassware yeah. and literally everything. Um, so if there's a product that I love, but we just can't get more than a couple bottles of it, we'll do it for a one day thing. Mm -hmm. and it's part of the, the, one of the few benefits of a constantly rotating menu. We're not beholden to products that don't exist. Um, mm -hmm. big fan of like honesty, um, on the menu. I understand why a lot of places just say Jamaican rum or, um, American whiskey, but we like to list specific brands. Mm -hmm. I, um, mm -hmm. drinks are, drinks are not cheap and I want people to see that they're getting what they're paying for. Absolutely. Um, so subbing in another product is not, not always feasible. We'll just switch out the cocktail. Yeah. I like that though. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I was always just so impressed by like, not only the fact that you were coming out with like an incredible variety of drinks at the Fox, but also like the consistency. Like I, mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever had a bad drink or even a mediocre drink at the Fox. They've all yeah. been great. Uh, I mean, we definitely have had one or two over the years that are, are dark jokes for us. And we're like, oof, that probably, we shouldn't revisit that. Sometimes you fly a little too close to the sun, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> that's okay. I think there's, I think you guys fully understand, especially with um, Result Room having such a behemoth of a cocktail menu. Yeah. It's not that there are good drinks and bad drinks. There are, but there is the drink for every person exactly. and, and every mm -hmm. mood. Like, I mean, what you, if you guys love a daiquiri, you might say, who doesn't? There are plenty of people that are like, oh my God, I could never drink that much acid. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's just finding right now. We, we generally have about 30 cocktails on offer every day. Um, and it's nice to be like, well, there's something for everyone there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And your space is, is small enough. I mean, it's like a 50 seat so small. spot, right? Uh, don't tell the fire marshal that it's 42 seats. Okay. I would yeah. never say otherwise. Okay, cool. It's 42 <laughs> seats. I'll edit this out. Um, but, uh, the, uh, like it's almost as if like, if, in, unless you're packed to the gills, like every single person in your bar could have a different drink in their hand. Uh, which is pretty rad for the like the size of the menu versus like the size of the space. I think it's really cool. Oh, for sure. And I think we try really, I we I try very very hard not to have repeating ingredients or even repeating glassware. Everything, if you name one ingredient or what it looks like, it should be instantly recognizable. Um, and that's not always possible, but we try our hardest. It's um it's a weird juxtaposition of people that want that like craft cocktail mixology experience and people that the least important thing in the room is the drink. They're just trying to have a good time. They're on a date. So making sure people can get as much or as little as they want. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, knowing like having a, a sense of what people want from their experience and trying to, to gauge that uh, is such a huge part of being 
a good bartender. Uh, and so I love that that's something that's always on your mind. Uh, but you know, again, I could just talk about the Fox for, for forever. Mm -hmm. Um, but we are here to talk about a specific cocktail. Uh, and what cocktail is that, Laura? Ooh, uh, I looked over the cocktails you guys had featured on some of your last episodes. Um, but I noticed one of my personal favorites is missing the Moscow mule. Well, the Moscow mule is a delightful drink i just actually finished mine Um, (laughs) i was gonna say every single episode by the time we get to around to introducing the actual drink we're talking about lynn is already done with the first one (laughs) i do drink quickly unfortunately uh i have mine the 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 moscow mule one is a delicious drink but it also has like a really it's an it's an interesting story and like a confluence of events. Uh, and I know you did a little bit of research about that. So I'd, I'd love for you to tell us about it. Absolutely. Well, I think it's one of those drinks that has such a negative connotation these days. Um, well, I, I, it might have been pushed out for the espresso martini, but um, <laughs> mm-hmm. putting aside like that, I think, I don't know, I have strong opinions that uh, whatever is going to be the least popular um with bartenders and in popular culture is just what, uh, whatever women are drinking at the time. And that's a whole different subject. Yeah. Um, but the Moscow mule, I mean, I can see why it became so popular. It's at its base, a highball. It is the thing that while there's very little to hide behind and theoretically nothing can go wrong, there are easy things to do incorrectly. And it's, um, I think people have this idea that it was invented in 2002 at a beer garden that wanted to sell something easy and quick, Um, but it has a really interesting historical provenance. Hmm. Um, So kind of two drinks uh, came to the forefront around the same time. Uh, Everybody kind of looks at the Moscow Mule, and uh, maybe I shouldn't say everybody. Uh, Plenty of people know the history of, you know, a a ginger beer company, in New York and a vodka company, actually the head of Smirnoff Vodka kind of sat down at the same time and were like, why can't I sell my ginger beer? Why can't I sell my vodka? Um, Thus the Moscow Mule. Um, And that kind of uh, cocktail history is marked or cocktail provenance is marked through when it first appears in writing. Um, Like many things, that's kind of how we, I think, as as a culture track them. Um, And that kind of first appeared in 1941. At the same time, well, 1942, other side of the world, um, you see in Egypt, um, the suffering bastard. Hmm. So these drinks, these drinks are so integrally the same as much as they are different. Um, And it's kind of, I think of that one as the grandfather to the Moscow mule, even though technically it was invented second, it definitely gained popularity first. Um, and I think is a lot more exciting to drink um, if you have a guest that's open to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Suffering Bastard, if you're not familiar, um, is London dry gin with uh, brandy, well, uh, grape brandy. Um, traditionally, rose is lime juice, but if you would like to use sugar and lime, go nuts. Um, Angostura bitters and uh, ginger beer. And then a float of, I've seen it floated with ginger beer, oh, forgive me, with Angostura over top. Um, mint sprigs traditionally, but with either orange slice, lemon and lime slice is a favorite. Um, I like that one because it's one of the few uh, classics, or I guess you can't say it's a modern classic given that we're in 2022. <laughs> uh, but mm-hmm. <laughs> everything post 1910 is a modern classic. Um, <laughs> 
coming out of Africa, um, which I think is such an exciting thing because people think drinking culture is such an Anglo-Saxon tradition. And it's yeah. absolutely not. Um, although the what we think of as some of the big cocktail epics certainly originated in America, not all of drinking culture is ours. Not even a small percentage is ours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Every culture everywhere has invented some version of the sword and also some version of alcohol. So like drinking culture <laughs> is is a universally human thing. Uh, and And so, yeah, I definitely like, I, I I feel like we're moving away from that a little bit, at least as like like bartenders educating themselves. Uh, I feel like we're moving away from that a little bit, but there is certainly still like this this position that cocktails are like this intrinsically American art uh, when they're just not. Um, you know, we just we just made cocktails the loudest for a while what an american tradition making things the loudest (laughs) making things the loudest uh yeah i always kind of think about the moscow mule uh in particular i've actually never had a suffering bastard and i was looking at it just now i was like oh yeah that sounds that sounds great uh and it's so tasty yeah it sounds awesome i actually enjoy my moscow mule with a little bit of angostura bitters uh at the there are a couple different we should also talk briefly about how to make a Moscow mule. Yeah. Because uh, there's the traditional way, and then there's the way that a lot of bars do it, including uh, my bar uh, and a couple bars that I've worked at. Uh, so what what would you say is the like prime recipe for a Moscow mule, Laura? I'm a, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the vodka lime ginger beer. Um, the spicier, the better. Mm-hmm. I... The places that have that like burping bottle of homemade ginger beer, yeah. I'm terrified for them, but I'm excited about it. <laughs> um, I don't know. I admittedly at the Fox, we'll do um, ginger juice, lime juice, and Topo Chico mm-hmm. um, to get that to get that spice. But there's nothing that makes me sadder than than ginger ale with vodka. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we actually so at the at Old Glory where I used to work. We did a little bit of ginger ginger syrup and simple uh, to up the sweetness a little bit, lime juice uh, and soda with Angostura bitters. And I thought that that was a very good Moscow mule. Um, For sure. And at the Roosevelt Room, we use ginger syrup and then we top it with ginger ale, not ginger beer, but the ginger uh, syrup adds the spiciness. But I really don't think that there's any beating like a nice spicy uh, ginger beer with with lime juice and and vodka. Yeah, that um, that's just like aggressive heat. It's so so good, and mm-hmm. it's such a good um. I know. I think a lot of people. The conversation has really headed of late. Well, not really lately, but towards um, like cocktail mothers. Like you have your um, your Negroni Manhattan family and your your sour daiquiri Daisy family, mm-hmm. and I think the the Mule Buck family it gets shunted in with highballs and it really shouldn't be. It really stands the test on its own. Because once you, you have your Moscow mule, you have your suffering bastard, um, honestly. And then you put in black strap, black strap rum and it's its own category. Yeah. You got the uh, dark and stormy. Yeah. Uh, another awesome cocktail. Um, the, yeah, I always think about the Moscow mule when I think about the story of it. Also speaking of just like, very American things. Uh, the story of it is so funny. Um, just in terms of like 
kind of the capitalistic nature of it. You know, they're they're just like, well, my thing isn't selling well, and my thing isn't selling well, and oh, I make these <laughs> copper mugs. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> this isn't selling well either. Let's all put this together and try to sell our products more. Yeah, which I feel like you have so many other like the ice cream cone and like other things like that. that... Oh, well, tell me about the ice cream cone. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, now I want ice cream. Just like this. It's like the same idea, like World Fair. There's a waffle guy, an ice cream guy, and they're like, yeah, these are boring. And then they like take waffle. I did not know that. Take are you, are you making fun of me? No, not even a little bit. I just bit. thought that everyone knew that that was how <laughs> ice cream cones were invented. Um, but yeah, I feel like that's like, yeah, like a classic. I don't know if that even happened in America, but just like World Fair making making things, making yeah. new types of foods. Um, I love that. Mm-hmm. Where there's just... That's so good. Yeah, two guys and then they make something together that is iconic like an ice cream cone or a moscow mule yeah uh, <laughs> and obviously we're right now while we're recording this there's a lot of shit going down uh between russia and the ukraine and uh, yeah obviously we send all of our love to to the people of the ukraine and and uh what they're going through right now is terrible uh and i've seen a lot of like pushback on russian products or things that are perceived to be russian uh one thing uh one thing that i've noticed i was at the liquor store earlier today to buy vodka for this uh and um there were like there was the smirnoff and stoli both had like a tag on like underneath the the price tag that was like made in the usa or for uh stoli it was like made in latvia uh, because people are trying to separate the, the, if I feel like for a while they were trying to like associate their vodkas with, with Russian culture. And now they're trying to like very much distance like, it. We're actually American. Please um, still buy our vodka basically. Which is interesting. Which oh yeah. And it's so funny to, to go back and see cocktail trends, like anything else. It's so funny when people are like, Oh wow. Espresso martinis are really popular nowadays and watching the kind of, accumulation of things it takes to make these happen seeing i mean these like russian products and traditionally eastern i shouldn't even say russian eastern european drinking habits that were popularized pre-cold war and then you saw um then you saw kind of uh people airing away from that um mm-hmm. i mean it's the same thing with the the freedom fries mm-hmm. um what was it like 15 20 years ago yeah it's um Drinking culture is so predicated by what else is going on in the world. It's, mm-hmm. It has trends just like any other. I mean, you don't need to drink alcohol to survive. You need it for joy. But um, <laughs> I, I, I think of cocktail trends a lot like fashion trends. Um, they're so malleable and, and kind of interesting to follow and watch. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it's funny because people uh, stuck at home. Over the past couple of years, you saw a big renaissance of the um, the kind of at-home drinking culture of the baby boomer era. All these like 40s and late 40s, early 50s drinks that require very few ingredients that can be made at home that are very spirit forward boomed in popularity again. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you how many people 
I saw a call for a black Manhattan, something mm-hmm. that has never been that popular with the the common guest, or I should say not that well known with the common guest, mm-hmm. but you know, anything with three ingredients or, or less that someone can make at home. Um, we're seeing a lot, lot more of, and yeah. uh, the Moscow mule is, is something like that. And it's funny. Cause I don't think, like you mentioned, I don't think a lot of people have heard of the suffering bastard. Um, but the bartender that invented it, um, Joe, I can't pronounce his last name. Um, Skelum. We're going to, we're going to go with that. He actually had a huge um, and really interesting career. So he was at the um, Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo in 1942 when he invented it. Um, During World War II, it was like super, super popular with British officers at the time and press corps. Um, It was seen as somewhat swankier for the area. Um, And ginger beer with that crowd makes a lot of sense. Um, Ginger has always been a popular flavor um, with the English kind of mid 1800s and and beyond. Um, But after that, he kind of, um, the hotel was destroyed in the 50s uh, during a riot, which in Egypt at the time is not crazy surprising. Um, Mm -hmm. But he actually ended up um, going to San Juan, Puerto Rico to open a Hilton there, um, which I don't know if it was the same Hilton that the Pina Colada was invented at, but I like to think it is. Um, mm-hmm. And he he spent the remaining of his career going through Cuba and the Caribbean, opening Hilton hotels. So he definitely, uh, he was not one of those one and done, one hit wonder bartenders. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be why Mules gained such popularity as kind of a refreshing tiki-esque or tiki adjacent drink i mean mm-hmm. if you have mm-hmm. a beverage director for some of the biggest hotels in the world shilling out that cocktail it's it's not hard to difficult it's not difficult to imagine that it would gain popularity yeah uh, i mean they, it seems like it seems as if the the like if, when you compare the two the moscow mule does end up being like a you know, like pared down version simplified version of the suffering bastard so for sure it's a it's not a hard leap to say like oh you know this was especially like if if the suffering bastard was a cha- more challenging drink for somebody I'm like oh well i have this other thing that's like pretty similar mm-hmm. well it's, and it's one of those things like like the margarita and daisy that you're like i can see where the jump would be and i can see where people were traveling from where one of these drinks was enjoyed to where another was invented um and so it's a lot of like following cocktail books from the time and making assumptions based on mm-hmm. on traveling and drinking trends but i think it's pretty safe to say um i just love that it's become such an easy thing for uh for beginning drinkers to experiment with flavors absolutely um you know it's it's an easy leap to be like well if you like it with this let me put in a little something else mm-hmm. that being said um the fox tries to be as minimal waste as possible. So we don't generally have just fresh fruits around. Um, and I don't really carry, actually I don't carry flavored vodka. Unfortunately, I would drink all of it. Big fan. But um, <laughs> every once in a while someone comes in and they're like, what flavors of Moscow mule do you have? And I have to give them a very, like, I'd, I'd love to make you a vodka flavor um, or we got ginger flavor. Those are those are about the <laughs> yeah. options, but yeah, we've, we've got this really cool ginger flavored Moscow Mule. It's great. You do have? I do you still it. have the Thai Mule? Um, we do. Yeah, that one is one. We keep a couple classics around that every once in a while I take them off the menu, and so many people ask for them. I'm like, we're just 
We're just going to keep it easy. It is mm-hmm. nice keeping uh, once, you know, once every two weeks and I buy Thai basil leaves to uh, to make for that one. I definitely take the stems home and uh, make like a basil kind of pesto out of them. So mm. Ooh, very fun. That's it's delicious. always it's always minimal waste, usually to my that. personal kitchen. But <laughs> that's so cool. Even still. Absolutely. To your kitchen or, you know, in the compost bin or in the trash. So yeah. exactly. Sometimes I definitely take it a little too far. Our uh, our two menus ago, I think we had our like garnish setup had, I think, like 14 different items on it, which doesn't seem like much to many cocktail bartenders, but considering they were all minimal waste, so either dried or fried or dehydrated, we had um, several different like barks grated over things and one thing garnished with cheese tweel and things that had extendable shelf life. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, I didn't realize so working at that bar and, and managing that menu, how frequently I relied on, oh, you know, just put a mint bouquet in it, just put some berries on it, just put a flower. And it really does become a crutch. Um, Absolutely. It bums me out. It's such a modern trend with bartenders to like make fun of dehydrated fruit and it can be overused for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're not careful, they can look really sad, but I definitely love the benefit of, of not, like guests shouldn't have to work. And if you have like a fruit wheel floating in a drink, the impulse for a lot of people is to squeeze it. And then your drink isn't balanced and your hands are all sticky and wet. This is, this mm. is like training wheels. Yeah. It, uh, mm-hmm. it takes away a lot of the, the guesswork. Absolutely. Well, again, all this, all this talk about, <laughs> about uh, Moscow mules and the fact that I finished mine like halfway through <laughs> our talk about or right before we even started talking about <laughs> Moscow mules has got me parched. So I think let's take a little break. Uh, okay. And then when we come back, we'll uh, catch up with kind of what you've been interested in lately and uh, give a little bit of advice. So we will see you all in just a minute. And we're back. And this is where we usually talk about martinis because everyone wants to talk about martinis. uh, And we can't just have a million episodes about one drink. But you mentioned another drink that I really know nothing about that um, called the blue drink. Is this correct? (laughs) Or is that just a, a general umbrella? It is and it isn't in the same way that I would say the martini has become a general umbrella. I really shouldn't say that. So many hordes of angry bartenders (laughs) are going to come after me for calling the martini an umbrella. Yeah, we we talk we talk a lot about like capital M martinis and lowercase M martinis and then like capital D daiquiris and lowercase D daiquiris. So there's like a little wiggle room there. I like that a lot. It's funny because I actually have just been, I like to keep a blue drink on the menu at all times. Um, and as much as the, it's it's such a, a current, you know, tongue-in-cheek cocktail trend mm-hmm. um, for bartenders of late, but like many things we're drinking, it's not new. Uh, it's not new remotely. Um, so I just kind of wanted to delve in a little bit about what I love about it and uh, and what makes the blue drink so cool and special and 
what you're allowed to enjoy about it. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us all about it. Yeah. So I think, uh, like I mentioned, a lot of you'll go to many like cocktail bars nowadays and they'll have very serious cocktails and very, you know, sort of stoic drinks. And they might have one kind of tropical drink that's dyed neon blue or Mm -hmm. or green if they've put pineapple into it. Mm -hmm. Um, and they think it's very funny. Um, and, and, uh, it's, it's something that's kind of becoming a little bit more prevalent. It goes in, it goes in waves for sure. Um, but the first um, kind of blue drinkable blue liqueur shows up as early as the 1930s. Um, so okay. I should say the vast majority of blue drinks you will see are blue from one ingredient, blue curacao. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny. It's one of those like weird things. If you talk to a lot of guests, um, they don't realize that curacao can be something other than blue. Mm-hmm. Um, which was a funny thing I realized a couple of years back. It it obviously is not naturally that color. It's dyed. So it's not? kind of to <laughs> I know. Wild. Um, it's actually harvested by Smurfs. <laughs> it's um so obviously like Curacao is uh is an island um of the Caribbean. It used to be the largest um of a Dutch chain of islands, and it's actually been an independent nation for the past about 10 years, 10, 11 years. Um sure. nice. uh, but when the Spanish um, kind of settled there in, in 1499, um, they started like importing and exporting, mostly importing diseases and exporting people as the Spanish were wont to do at the time. Um, but in uh, a, tri- a trip there in the 1520s, um, they brought uh, oranges from Valencia, Sevilla oranges. Um, and while in Spain, these are like beautiful, plump, ripe fruit, um, in that sort of dry, arid climate, um, they grew really, really bitter with thick peels. Um, and so for years, it's kind of developed into its own sort of uh, subbreed of Laraja oranges. And no one on the island would eat them. They were terrible, um, bitter, really pithy, dry. Um, a lot of people don't realize about oranges is they're actually green in color on the outside mm. unless they've been treated. So these weird green fruit. Um, and then uh, when the I think uh, when the Dutch colonized in the 1600s uh, or when they took over colonization of the island in the 1600s, they started exporting some of them back. Um, And in Europe, they were using those peels uh, to make eau de vie, to make perfume with Mm -hmm. and to make uh, flavored liqueurs. So, so Curacao is certainly not a new product, which I think would not surprise many bartenders. Um, but one of the original companies to to bottle and sell it from Curacao, uh, Senor and Company, um, as early as 1896, they had a little like like many products um, we see still on the market. They had a little drugstore um, and they bottled and sold outside as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but they for years sold it um, in its original color, so it, it's colorless. Um, but they would add um, a little bit of orange color from the peels, and then they sold it in green and red and blue. Um, there is a uh, when exporting it back, um, the Dutch called it creme de ciel, cream of the sky, um, mm. which has a very like I like that name. Exciting so much, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, right? I kind of want to call it that in menus from now on. Um, but in the in the 1930s, you kind of saw that early wave of tiki bar, and I do. I know. Um, we should kind of discuss the term 
very gently, the term tiki is one that I know a lot of us veer away from. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of negative uh, connotations. But for me personally, when I refer to drinks of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, like Trader Vic's cocktails, they were referred to as tiki at the time. And those bars with their negative things and and positive are what would be categorized as tiki. So I'm just going to continue to call them so. Um, But uh, in that kind of 1930s, early first wave of tiki bar, um, pre-World War II era, you saw um, a lot of like brightly colored cocktails, um, things that had oceanic um, or Polynesian flavor, what people thought of as Polynesian. It's also kind of at the same time you saw, um, like color photography has existed since uh, since the 1890s, but um, 1930, 1935 is kind of when you first saw it in print, in mm-hmm. books and cookbooks. So at the same era, you're seeing um, a big export of European products to America. You're seeing um, people start to move out to the burbs and make drinks for themselves. You're seeing tiki bars and you're seeing colored food and cocktails first show up in cookbooks. It's not hmm. a, uh, it's not really a surprise that brightly colored things kind of first boomed in popularity during that time. Um, and then you kind of saw in the, the kind of second wave tiki era, um, one of the most popular, I'd say, traditional blue cocktails, the blue Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. came around and it's funny uh people think of it as being named after the elvis movie but the cocktail actually predates the movie by about three or four years i think hmm. um yeah yeah so it was invented by harry e. of the hawaiian village hotel in 57 um super light refreshing very blue um which is not always easy to achieve i mean it's shocking to people but blue plus hmm. yellow or brown kind of gets you a muddled green mm. more more often than not. Um, but vodka, light rum, that good blue curacao and pineapple juice and um, unfortunately sour mix, but it was the late 50s. So mm-hmm. we can't really hold them accountable for that. Um, and then you kind of saw uh, an obsession with um, Hawaii and Polynesian kind of culture in general. Mm-hmm. With Elvis's movie coming out, I mean, this was sort of the peak of his popularity in 1961. So that movie released. Um, the Beach Boys were kind of at the early bit of their hype and surf rock was just huge. Mm-hmm. So anything that either was Hawaiian or could be seen as such was kind of ingrained in American popular culture. For sure. Um, and then, And you would think it would die off past then, but no. <laughs> uh speaking of of tiki and and the connotation that it has and like just general like kind of colonizer vibes from from tiki culture um i went to this bar there's a bar in uh san juan uh puerto rico called jungle bird and yeah they have uh two sections on their menu which i thought was very cool and mm. i hadn't really thought about it extensively until then like I'd kind of known inherently, but I'd never actually thought about it. They had a tiki section and a tropical section. And uh, I thought that that was really cool the way that they separated those two things. Basically, like like the tiki section had like the more like influenced by by like Polynesian flavors and culture. And then the tropical drinks, which are more like your your 
Caribbean drinks, your daiquiris, mm-hmm. your Hotel Nationales, things Which, like that. Yeah, have and similar I, beachy vibes, but mm-hmm. like And they often different. get conflated. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I think about that a lot these days um, and how people will just like, they'll just say that a tropical bar is a tiki bar. Absolutely. And there's such a weird like line to draw what is and is not a classically tiki drink. And is it, you know, is it first wave tiki? Is it second wave tiki? Is it 1970s post fern bar tiki? Is it this modernist tiki um, with um, like what stops a, I mean, there's been a popular drink kind of floating around, uh, you know, a rum Negroni and they'll often put like some pineapple in it. Or Mm -hmm. is that a tiki drink? Is a daiquiri? It's such a weird line to define. I personally, and there's like no real reason for me to feel this way. For me, I think um, a tropical drink would use ingredients and technique from the tropics. If you were swizzling it, um, Mm -hmm. uh, if it's using certain fruits and citrus fruit, if it's using um, rum from that region. Um, And then you have like, what about things using aguardientes or or Mexican cane spirits? What what do those fall under? Um, But for me, tiki, the only kind of rules for me, it's less about ingredients and more how it is built. Um, My kind of ethos has always been a classic cocktail or what we call a classic cocktail uses almost more French culinary techniques. Less is more Mm -hmm. all about parity of ingredients, whereas Mm -hmm. the tiki mentality is more like, I, I like to think of it as like Indian cooking. You have your base layer of flavors and you're going to extract from those spices. You're going to cook those spices first and then layer either by doing a, like a mixed build of base spirits or layering flavor. It's why you see so many tiki drinks, like the original 1934 zombie uses so many ingredients. Yeah, It's, <laughs> it's using like a quarter bar spoon of, um, it's also way too boozy to ever serve a guest. Yeah, it's like it's like five ounces of booze, right? <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not legal. Um, but that's why for me, like a uh, daiquiri falls under tropical. Um, but a uh, like a rum negroni or um, or something more to that line would fall under tiki. I mean, a, a pina colada, I think, is even more tropical. Agreed. But it does. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It if Don the Beachcomber had it in a book. Does that make it tiki? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, for me, for me, I, I think like my answer is a little bit simpler or my my like connotation is a little bit simpler. Like, uh, is it like like is it more like in the style of a Caribbean drink or like something that you would find made like originating from like Cuba or Puerto Rico or or Mexico somewhere in like just the general Caribbean era or area sorry or is it something that is coming like inspired by like east asian flavors because a lot of the like early tiki drinks are are inspired by like east asian and uh pacific island uh flavors oh absolutely and it's such a weird i don't know that you can draw a line especially when everything everything is so bastardized and Mm -hmm. everything is a riff i mean there's nothing new under the sun everything is a riff on a riff on a riff of something else Mm -hmm. Um, and I almost think early tiki is not even, it's not, it's not really using, um, like Polynesian or, uh, Pacific Island flavors. It's using what people thought of. It's like the yeah, Disneyland yeah, version that of is that. The thing. It's like <laughs> just fair. the idea, like, it's like the connotation of the connotation 
of right. those ingredients. It was, like, it was it's just not... like, I mean, at the end of the day, it was a, it was a couple white dudes who like who like sailed around for a little bit and then brought back like their memory of what they thought they had, basically. Mm-hmm. And they were oh, like, yeah. that's tiki. Yeah. But like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just an interesting layer of like, wait, is this like, could this be considered purely tropical or is there that influence or is it both um i just yeah it was just an interesting distinction oh yeah and there's also the idea that you categorize cocktails by era which i love i think i remember the roosevelt room did a lot of like categorizing cocktails by year which i thought was really really cool Mm -hmm. um so there's the like did it come from that like when i hear west coast cocktail or california cocktail i think of that like French laundry, fresh ingredients, um, San Francisco drink that is like um, uses a lot of like seasonality and fruit and flowers. Um, and when I hear like East Coast style cocktails, I think generally more stirred and bitter mm-hmm. um, and a little bit uh, later in that in that 90s, 2000s era. For sure. Um yeah, uh, but to bring it back around to uh, what we were initially talking about, uh, blue drinks, <laughs> um, and you you said that you like you as you said you always strive to have a blue drink on the menu. Uh, what is your current blue drink? Ooh, um, well, depends. When does this episode air? This episode will air in a well. It's it's gonna air in like two months probably. Oh, um, perfect. Then I can tell you. Um, perfect. <laughs> uh, well, it's, since it will already have happened on uh, April 1st, we like doing a lot of like special menus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for April Fool's Day, we worked with one of our brand partners um, and just did a menu of affordable classics, $13 classics. Um, but each one of them is blue. Uh, Negroni, a Manhattan, um, a... Uh, Blue Hawaiian is actually on there um, and a dirty martini. Um, So I should clarify before anyone wretches that blue Curacao is not the only way to dye cocktails blue. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There's not, I did not make a dirty martini (laughs) full of blue Curacao. That would be so very unfair and upsetting. Um, (laughs) You can absolutely use food dye. Um, Blue dye number one and two are the most popular um, in the U.S. for food right now. Um, one is a little bit darker than the other. Usually it's a combination of the two, but you can also use um, blue pea flower is one that saw mm. a big, what, yeah, every bartender is like, oh my God, yes. Uh, saw a big wave, well, well probably about uh, five to 10 years ago. It was in everything. If you ever had a drink, someone was like, now if you pour lemon juice in it, it changes color. That mm-hmm. was blue pea flower. Uh-huh. Um, so you can use that. You can use uh, hypnotic. Is I don't know if that will ever make a resurgence, but it is blue. One of the last stalwarts from the great, uh, I like to call it club era of cocktails yeah. where mm. neon was king. I'm pretty sure um, that's spelled H-Y-P-N-O-T-I-Q. It is. I know that for a fact. Uh, big fan. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, it's it's so funny because it's although it's maybe not the tastiest product ever. There, it gets lumped in with so many others. Like uh, Midori, for example, mm-hmm. is one that like bartenders have decided that's okay to use again. Yep. Um, 
which, and we use it in our, in our cocktail menu. It has a beautiful melon flavor. It does give a nice, like delicate green color to things when mixed in, but it's also like way drier than you would think it is. Oh yeah. It's not, it's not crazy syrupy sweet. Um, but it's funny to see what's, you know, what's kosher and what's not what Mm -hmm. you're allowed to use and what you're not. I think, um, there's also the idea that like, oh, you have to veer away from anything harmful. And while absolutely don't put tobacco leaves in your drinks, you know, you really shouldn't be putting a scoop full of um, activated charcoal in, in anything. It's also, it's alcohol. It's not, we're not we, drinking it for yeah. the health benefits. We are actively mm. poisoning ourselves. It's fine. <laughs> yes. Um, but if you can make it fun and neon. <laughs> <laughs> You, you know, you just and have to make fine. it fun, neon, and taste good, and then it, you know, mm-hmm. exactly. I mean, I think as long as people are know what they're getting into, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just the idea to me of making things blue that ought not to be. It's very. I think I'm the kid that grew up with the. Do you guys remember in the '90s there was that brief stint of like purple and green ketchup? Yes. I do remember that. I I, like that like tickles the way back <laughs> my brain. I can't remember anything. I want a green ketchup. I got green ketchup. I begged my mom for it. I want a green ketchup so bad. Oh, yeah. It's, um. I, I grew up reading the book Green Eggs and Ham and okay. any food that was a color that it should not have naturally been appealed to me so much. <laughs> okay. Um, I was like, this is, this is great. This is just how it yeah. should be. I mean, blue raspberry is <laughs> yeah. like- a huge thing and that's not real um but it's such a part of the lexicon now Mm -hmm. um i think and there's there's no reason i mean i'm not out here saying you should make your pegu club blue but you know you could yeah i would i'd probably drink it the blue the blue food really also reminds me of percy jackson which i don't know if you're familiar with but basically his dad said there was no, or like his stepdad or something said there was no such thing as blue food. And so his mom always made a point of making like blue chocolate chip cookies and stuff, uh, which seems very much in the spirit of the blue drink. But I wanted to see if you had any um, particular misconceptions from TV or movies um, about bartending, bar culture, drinking that stand out to you and drive you crazy whenever you're watching something um i don't know i would say my two biggest pet peeves and they're not even a pet peeve i guess uh i don't love it love it when someone's like everyone's automatic assumption is that a uh, a martini has to be shaken um because they they watch james bond it's like first of mm. all that's it's not a martini. It's a Vesper. It's a whole other thing. I'm happy to make it for you, but if you paid attention, they he specifies shaken, not stirred, because it typically would be stirred. And we, sh- I can't even get into an argument whether Vesper should be shaken or stirred or thrown. It's a whole thing. Um, <laughs> I don't. Um, I feel like we're seeing fewer and fewer people make cocktails on TV. I think the last time I saw someone like bartending on TV, it was like the bit actors who are the bartenders on law and order SVU. And they're like, yeah, I definitely saw that person in here. Mm. Um, Just shaking a drink the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Like it's so, yeah, I guess that, that would be a thing. Um, People making drinks at home think they have to shake or stir their drinks for way, way, way longer than they do. Your ingredients are your, your tools are, have been sitting on your 
bar shelf, their room temperature, and your ice, like mine, is from your home freezer, I promise you just pouring it over it is diluting it enough. Um, and I don't I don't really mind if people keep their vermouth on their back bar at home um, on their bar shelf, but I 100% guarantee they do. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it, sounds, it sounds like cheesy and corny to say, but in this current climate and economy, if someone wants to give me their money and come into my bar and buy things and pay me to make drinks for them, yes, please. Um, I purposefully at the Fox keep a, we have over 400 bottles, different bottles in stock right now, not even including um, fortified wines and spirit-free selections. So if someone wants something, I will either make it or try my very best to, because it's like, thank you. That's about it. I, I don't know. I guess it's, people are always like, oh, what's your least favorite drink to make? I, I'm, I guess a messy one. I don't, but if I'm messy, that's, that's just my fault. Yeah, that's, that's really just not on, on you. That's mm-hmm. just on you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's good to hear too. I love, I love hearing like a lack of pet peeves too. Cause I, I think that that's great for people to hear as well that like, you don't have to be self-conscious that you're going to like say something that a bartender is going to be like, ugh, uh, you know, shaken martini. It's just like, okay, that's what you want. Like, cause you saw it in a movie and you think it's cool. Like, you want it? You're going to pay oh, yeah. me for it? For sure. Rad. I awesome. Do, I do have a pet peeve. That's my pet peeve. When people come in and they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. This is the craziest order. And then they just like ask for a thing. And I'm like, you're allowed to ask. Who broke you? <laughs> yeah. No, it's okay. I'm so like, mean to you. Like at some point they went to a bar that didn't deserve their business. And the bartender was like incredibly rude to them probably. And like got really standoffish when they like mildly inconvenienced them or just ordered something like counter to what they like believed the it should like i feel like sometimes there have been there are and i feel like these bars are dying out and like thank god because they they shouldn't exist where the the trends of like you should be so lucky to sit at my bar like we know how to Oof. do things like we're we're over here crafting these drinks meticulously and how dare you ask for something that we don't want to make and it's like we're, we're slinging drinks but like it's not it's not that hard like I mean, <laughs> like we put a lot of work into it and you know we we do our best to to like make drinks and do that do it well uh but at the end of the day like you're not drinking sling, the drink like, we're slinging drinks and it's hospitality that's the most important thing uh, yeah, it's uh, I guess it's not a pet peeve, but I kind of get a little sad um, or not sad, but kind of disappointed when someone's like when they're very insistent, just make me anything or I understand where it's coming from. It's mm-hmm. very flattering to have someone trust that you're good at your job. But I think the key point for me is that very good bartenders it has very little to do with making drinks. It has something to do with making drinks, but what makes an exceptional bartender is their ability to not only read people, but to interpret what that person wants. If someone says, I want something wintry, you're not going to make them a snowman. Like you're going to make something. <laughs> you, your ability to interpret what wintry means to them and to make that into a flavor, that mm. is the strength. And mm-hmm. by just saying whatever and not giving any like, my greatest strength is not my ability to make drinks. And by me, I mean anyone who bartends professionally. Our greatest strength is our ability to interpret what someone wants with as few words as possible. Um, but when they won't give any words or they're just like, whatever, like, I'd rather make you the best for you, not just 
yeah. the best. And I'm I'm happy to make whatever, but I'd rather it be something that's going to knock your socks off. Yeah. Whenever whenever somebody's just like, yeah, make me make me whatever. I like everything. I'm just like, I have some follow up questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like ask them, you know, the vibe they're feeling or spirits that they typically enjoy. And if they give me very, very little, then I'll make something fairly inoffensive uh, just to, you know, keep it, keep it from being a problem. Uh, I have one. Um, <laughs> um, this, I've seen this one. I've seen this one. So like we call this we call this show bottle episode partially because, you know, bottles and booze and all that sort of thing. But also it is the like trope in TV and movies where like, you know, every like the whole episode happens on one set uh, or uh, yeah, it's mostly TV. I think mm-hmm. there are a couple movies like that, but very few. Um, but um, one that I've seen recently, like making its rounds on TikTok uh, is like the the main character sitting at the bar and the bartender pours him a shot and the bar and the main character says, leave the bottle. <laughs> and, uh, I've seen something going around TikTok where the where the bartender is just like, yeah, sure, that'll be three hundred dollars. He's like, what? It's like, yeah, if you're asking for bottle service, like that's how much it's going to cost. So I have to apologize. I might be part of the problem when someone <laughs> sits at the bar and they order um, anything that's like more allocated or difficult to find or something they haven't heard of before, um, or I'm introducing them to and we're geeking out over a new product. Mm-hmm. I will bring the bottle to them. I will say being in Nashville, being kind of on the verge of bourbon country and certainly in the heart of Tennessee whiskey country, mm-hmm. um, people like taking photos of their neat pours with the bottle. And at this point, I just, I'm ahead of them. Every once in a while, someone makes the joke of, well, what if I pour? And then I do like a fake karate chop and I'm like, <laughs> mm. don't ask questions. You don't want the answers to. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, and I think that the, like, there's certainly like, I'm, I have no problem like putting the bottle in Showing, front of somebody. But so not just leaving it with them it. being like, right. pour whatever you want. Well, you want to drink the whole thing? Go for I'll it. I'll have your cheapest hooch, please leave the bottle. <laughs> uh, oh God, that was maybe, and I, I, I don't know that many guests stick out in my mind um, as like in a negative way, but I did have one years and years and years ago. I worked in a tropical bar. Um, We had a really exciting rum collection, uh, some really cool, fun, interesting drinks um, and Thai food. And this guy came in one time, hand to God, sat down at the bar and said, give me a scotch and make it cheap. And I was like, I, yes, but what? It was the heat of summer. It was beyond <laughs> bizarre. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't even mad. Just, like, <laughs> You're just like, what? Yeah. Same, same thing with like, uh, I feel like the same, same thing goes for like anybody who comes in and, and orders like, give me like three fingers of whiskey. And it's like, you've watched one too many cowboy movies. That's not how it works. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, overall, I feel like that's um, like it's nice to not have that many pet peeves. I just, I just like, yeah, I watch a lot of TV and watch a lot of movies, and I'm just like, that's not how that happens. Or like, how, why, why, why are people calling the bartender barkeep? That's that sort of yeah. stuff. But, yeah, but um, I also I think it's like um, in this in this climate and economy, there are so many bar jobs available and mm-hmm. so few bartenders. If there is a bar you want to work at in your city, in your state, in your country, anywhere on planet earth, if there's a bar you want to work at, 
I guarantee you can. Um, You might not be able to work there in the capacity that you want. You might, you know, have to go and be like, hey, can I bar back? Can I stage for you? Can I train? It might involve moving. They might not be hiring right now, but they were last week. Everybody is hiring places. You're like, oh, I could never work there. They're hiring. They'll Mm -hmm. hire you. Um, (laughs) So if you don't like, if you don't like the guests you're serving, if you don't like the drinks you're serving, that's okay. Find new ones. Go. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm never encouraging people to bounce around. But if you're not happy with where you're at, it is obvious, and you are doing both yourself and your guests a disservice. So, like, just find somewhere you are happy. I guess I don't have many pet peeves because I am obsessed with my bar. I'm mm-hmm. so happy there. Um, I was happy there before, and then I got to kind of take over the program and change the few things that were my pet peeves. And uh, that's been really awesome. So I guess my, you didn't ask, but my only advice for bartenders <laughs> were, would be if you have pet peeves, uh, if you don't like the room you're in, go find a different room. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Yeah, and truly like you, you think also that you can't, I feel like I have thought this in the past where it's just like, you think that you can't work at like the, the bar that is your like moonshot bar to work at. You can, you just, just shoot your shot. Like, you know, that you, again, you may not get the exact job that you're looking for, but if you, you know, you know, if you, if you think the grass is greener, you can always test that out. Yeah. Um, oh, and you I do love to tell try. people, I started as a bar back at the Fox. Now, granted, I, it was weird circumstances. I knew a bar spot was coming available soon. And I was, you know, certainly no one's overqualified to be a bar back, but it was, it was ready to bartend. It was a short transition, but the, I think because so many places are hiring, we're moving away from that mentality of pay your dues. And that's probably for the best, but you can always learn something um, Mm -hmm. starting at a a base level position and working your way up through a spot. I think the the best spots are ones that have that incorporated into their program because everyone knows everything and everyone's done everything. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, that's how we do it at Roosevelt Room. Everybody has to start as, as a bar back. Uh, and everybody has to bar back for at least a little while before they can be be a bartender there. And you have to go through like the full training program from start to finish, no matter how much experience you have. Uh, and the the humility required to do that is, I think, such a huge part of why our bar team is so strong right now. Um, because it, it, I mean, it just takes a lot, like it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. And, and it also takes a lot of like humbling yourself and and like doing the grunt work to you know, and showing that you care about the grunt work. That's the big thing for me, at least, is like when when I when I have a bar back who comes in and just half asses things because they don't because they think they're above it. Then I'm like, well, why would I trust you as a as as like a bartender as well? Um, But I digress. Yeah. <laughs> and unless you have anything uh, else to add to that, I have a couple listener questions. Uh, a listener and a friend uh, asked, so after hearing you guys talk about vermouth, I went home and compared an old open bottle and a new one and definitely could tell the difference. I never knew it had a shelf life. So what other liqueurs have a shelf life? How do we know? And does refrigeration help it last longer? Um, I would say generally the rule is Anything um, below uh, what, like twenty percent, I would look at seriously. Generally, that's the indicator that it is uh, it is wine based. Um, mm-hmm. It's 
It's safe to think of those things like wine. If you keep your wine in the fridge, they are fortified. Wine is fortified um, with sugar and sometimes with a little bit of extra alcohol um, and things that will slow down the oxidation process. And some of them, if they're like sherries already are oxidized, I, this is like a dirty thing to say at home, I will keep vermouths open in the fridge for like two and a half months. They definitely change with time, but I don't always mind that. I think Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's bad to say that the best care you can give is preventative, but um, once it's already gone, it's gone. You might as well make vinegar or cook with it at that point. Um, But to prevent that, I would say many great vermouths on the market make smaller bottles. This is true. Um, There are plenty Mm. of like half size bottles nowadays. Um, I would also think of different ways to use your vermouth. I'm a big fan in summer of just vermouth and soda on the rocks, Um, like a wedge. It's, it's, it's just a wine spritzer. It's just a delicious, delicious wine spritzer. Um, And I cook with mine a lot. I use, I, um, I know growing up, like my parents didn't drink. So they would buy when they were like deglazing a pan with sauce, they'd buy like mini bottles of absolutely terrible, terrible wine. Um, I just use vermouth to deglaze my pans when I'm cooking. Um, and it works pretty well for me. Uh, yeah, I, I, I feel similarly, uh, yeah, if you've got any any liqueurs, like yeah, proof wise, you can you can kind of tell whether something is wine based, um, and I think you can look it up typically too. Um, but uh, if it's liquor based, it's really not going to go bad. But if you do have something that has wine as the base, mm. then then that's the stuff you need to stick in the fridge. Um, and again, I I also keep my vermouth for as long as it takes for me to finish it, um, <laughs> which. With dry vermouth, I go I go through dry vermouth like like nobody's business. I, I drink dry vermouth uh, very specifically, um, but for sweet vermouth, I don't go through that nearly as fast. And uh, I've had a bottle in there for like months now. I should probably make sure it's still okay. Um, but all of that to say, um, you also don't have to keep your vermouth in the fridge. Uh, my caveat for that is if you're going through it quickly enough. Uh, it is fortified, so it's going to last. But you do like if you're if you're going through vermouth super quick at your house, uh, then you probably don't need to keep it in the fridge. But if you're but if you think that you're not going to finish that bottle within like a couple weeks, then you probably should keep it in the fridge and, you know, keep it in the fridge anyway. It's nice or cold. I like so. to keep it in the fridge because it's yeah, it's not just a longevity. I think we when people talk about making drinks at home um, and why drinks at home tastes different than bar drinks. They don't touch on the fact that with a stirred, we're just going to say stirred because you're probably making martinis or Manhattan's or Negroni's, 25% of your cocktail is water that comes from the ice that's in your freezer. So 25% of your cocktail at home now tastes like leftover mac and cheese, Ben and Jerry's, um, scraps for vegetable stock, whatever is in your freezer. And that's okay. No judgment. It really doesn't matter how clean your freezer is. Your ice is just going to taste a little bit like food because it's stored next to, to food. So if you're keeping your vermouth in the fridge, um, you're already pre-chilling the cocktail that it's going into. Um, so you can use a little bit of water rather than just ice to make that drink. This is true. Um, I And my only kind of things were there, as far as I know, there are two big products that I think are the, I've seen bartenders absolutely split down the middle on, um, which is Elisir Novosalis and Creme de Cassis. Um, I personally keep both of them in the fridge at, at work, but I've seen plenty of really reputable, nice bars not refrigerate them. Hmm. 
What is the first one? I've never heard of that. Um, Nova Salis, it's an alpine pine liqueur. Okay. Um, it's imported by um who are the people that do uh that do like uh that bring in um house alpens. Oh, okay. Um, cool, imports cool. it. It's tasty. Grappa based, good stuff. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And things like, I think a couple off the top of my head that I would keep in the fridge. Um, there are a couple of Mari, actually. Uh, like there's Pasubio, which is wine-based. Uh, oh, yeah. There's also Capaletti, um, <laughs> which is wine-based. And I would keep both of those in the fridge. Um, yeah, put it in the fridge unless you're planning on going through it in like a week. Um, and also put it in the fridge in general because it'll be colder and that's better. I have one more question from our friend Chico. So the follow-up one was about the to the one about keeping things in the fridge and shelf lives was how do you really feel about the movie cocktail? <laughs> I it's yeah. a fun movie. Yeah, I will say I feel like bartenders go down the middle on this one. Um you either love cocktail or coyote ugly, but it's not both. Um, and I'm firmly in, in Camp Coyote Ugly. It's uh, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, and I staunchly support it and every terrible thing they do to drinks in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that I, I think that Cocktail is a fine movie. I haven't seen Coyote Ugly. I feel like I should. I don't think I've seen it either. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll definitely need to watch seen that. Added to any the watch list. <laughs> um, but I've seen Cocktail once and... As a movie, I'm fine with it. As a depiction of of like bar culture, uh, I think it's incredibly de- detrimental. Uh, I think that I I just like as cool as flair bar attending looks. I really don't want to wait, you know, fifteen minutes for a gin and tonic, um, while while my bartender is is flipping their tens around and doing all this crazy stuff, and mm-hmm. like also just the the like coordinated dance routines that they do in cocktails like <laughs> how many times are you making the same drink at the same time when you're six deep at a bar and you're only making that drink like it just doesn't make any sense uh also cocktails and dreams is a terrible name for a bar it really really is it's uh it's so weird i was actually talking to someone the other day about flair and how I feel like many American bartenders feel the way that you do. And I'd say that the way that I do, that flair is non-functional, that it slows down the drink. Um, but in in European bar culture, it's so integral. I think um, the UK, they're uh, like TGI Fridays, they host this giant flair competition every year. And every bartender, I shouldn't say every bartender in the UK, but almost every bartender in the UK um, can do at least, you know, a modicum of functional flair. It is, if you're getting a cocktail there and you're not getting flair, it's like, what do you even paying for? Like, they must not be very good at their jobs. It's such an interesting thing because we, as Americans, we hold um, East Asian cocktail technique, Japanese cocktail technique, Korean cocktail technique in such high regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but things that have gained popularity in Eastern Europe and in the UK, um, such as flair and, and more formal white glove bartending, we kind of poo-poo. And I'm interested to see uh, as those things kind of regain or, or start to gain popularity here. 
Yeah. That being said, I can't do any flair. <laughs> <laughs> I think like I have said this before and I, I do feel pretty strongly about this that like I mean at, at the end of the day, bartending is a little bit of a performance. You know, you know, people like to sit at the bar because they like to watch the bartenders make the drinks. Uh, and it is fascinating to watch somebody who like really knows what they're doing do their job. Uh, it's 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 like part of what made me lo- fall in love with it in the first place. And I think that, you know, having a thing that you know how to do or like, you know, a little tin flip that you do or something like that, uh, as long as it's not slowing you down, I think that that everybody should have one of those things that they do. But I think that where you get into the th- the things that I really just can't stand are like, you know, I threw the bottle up in the air and I caught it in the tin and I'm just all of this to pour an ounce and a half. Oh, yeah. It's such a weird thing to think about. And I like specifically trained as a bartender and trained my staff um, with speed and efficiency of execution. It's a big thing. If you're building around, if you pick up a single bottle twice, you're messing up. If Absolutely. He drinks mm-hmm. one, four, and five, each use um, our passion fruit pineapple blend, you better be picking that up and hitting one, four, five. You, you know, you build in the same order. So if you have to, st- if you cut your hand open and have to step off to the emergency room, you can say the last ingredient and someone can take over. It's the idea of, of interrupting that flow and going the opposite direction is so Um, almost alien, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's, I think it'll have its day in the sun for sure. I mean, I like to Frisbee a coaster like too much. I love to Frisbee (laughs) coasters. Become inordinately good at it. Yeah. But I mean, that's the thing. Like if you're really good at Frisbee and a coaster, right to somebody like right in front of somebody, like that's rap. And I think that that's like, I, again, I think that bartenders should have like a thing. Um, But, but then getting into I don't know. Maybe maybe one day I'll change my mind on this. Uh, I'm open to my mind being changed, but uh, I, I look am... forward to coming to the Roosevelt mm-hmm. and seeing you juggle uh, jiggers and strainers. <laughs> Please do. Yeah, I'll I'll do. I'll put on a whole performance. Um, yeah, I also feel like if there's any fire element to any of the drinks, which there's a lot of fire, I yeah, feel like a lot at, the of fire room, at the Roosevelt room. That's all. If there's that, then you don't need to do a dance. There's like just like ooh fire, and then I forget. <laughs> everything that's happened i'll juggle some tin you can come into the roosevelt room uh come visit uh i'll juggle some tins then i'll get up on the bar and recite poetry and everyone will shut up and listen uh, and then everyone will leave and then you can just hang out <laughs> uh but anyway i think that we should probably wrap this up it's been so fun talking to you um before we go uh, do you have anything that you would like to plug um no just uh just follow us at the fox on uh on instagram and facebook um on instagram we are uh the fox nashville um we're in east nashville tennessee open seven days a week come say hi absolutely again can't recommend it highly yeah. enough uh it's the bar that sparked my passion to be a bartender uh, at all so mm-hmm. um yeah definitely go there elise uh, i know you got a lot of stuff yeah always. well mostly mostly just uh, you can listen to my other podcast called World is Burning. It's the storytelling podcast for your climate anxiety. So if you want to hear some stories about the environment, some of which are fun, some of which are slightly terrifying, uh, go <laughs> give that a listen. Um, and yeah, I also just rebranded my vintage shop to Heist Vintage. So if you're in Austin and want to come visit me at a market, I'll be sharing uh, that on 
Instagram, just H-E-I-S-S Vintage. Um, and I also sell online if you aren't in Austin. And uh, if you have any questions for us, please, please send them in. Uh, you can email us at bottleepisodepod at gmail.com or you can DM us on Instagram at bottleepisodepod. Uh, we are also making videos, uh, cocktail tutorials on TikTok at bottleepisodepod as well. Mm-hmm. Uh Come check it out. We're we're posting things on Instagram. We're posting things on TikTok. We've got we've got stickers. Uh, if you're in if you're in Austin, hit us up. We'll we'll get you some. But yeah, thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you again, Laura. It's been been such a pleasure. Uh, and we will catch you all next Friday two, after yeah. next. Two Fridays, two from, Fridays now. from now. We'll do it. Uh, <laughs> bye guys. Yeah, bye all. Sweet. And everybody, you know, drink responsibly. <laughs> <laughs>